You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Well, to some people, the fact that John the Baptist plays such a large part in the gospel narratives is a bit of a puzzle. He's like the warm-up act at a concert. We're waiting for the main event. We want to get on to the, to the real deal. The ministry, of course, of the Lord Jesus himself. But the key to understanding the significance of John is to know that he represents the fulfillment of the prophetic line that points to Jesus. He is like the whole of the Old Testament. All the Old Testament prophets rolled into one. And he symbolizes, therefore, continuity and fulfillment. Continuity with the past and fulfillment of the past of all of God's promise. Uh, promises to Israel. He came, if you like, to make it clearer than ever that the whole of Israel's history up to that point, the whole of the Old Testament, every word spoken was about Jesus. What was happening in the, the first part of our Bibles, the, the whole his, history of Israel was really the same thing that John was doing. Someone standing in the wilderness, pointing and saying, prepare the way of the Lord. He, he symbolically fulfills all that's gone before. And someone uh, the Old Testament is saying, one is coming who is greater than I. And so he, that's the role he fulfills. He's that link between what's gone before, what we call the Old Testament, history of Israel, and what's coming next. Well, the funny thing is that the people who came to hear John also continued and fulfilled a tradition. The tradition of misunderstanding the messengers of God. When um, God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he could have taken them straight to the promised land. He could have, you know, translocated them somehow. He didn't, or he could have just taken them straight through the wilderness in a matter of days. But if he had, he would have found a problem. The people he'd saved and taken out of slavery, while being freed from their chains, were still, in their hearts, slaves. And they responded to him as slaves. They responded to this God who'd saved them with fear. Uh, trepidation, you know, just... Uh, at, not as children who he'd rescued, uh, not as the people he wanted to make his own, but as uh, servants of a new master. And again and again, that fear led the people of Israel to misunderstand God's love for them and to reject him, to reject his, his power and authority in various ways. You see that in the wilderness, of course, that uh, as soon as they get low on water, they're beginning to worry and, uh, and complain about why God has led them into the desert. They have this miraculous manna, but it's not as nice as the food they used to have. Uh, Moses disappears for 40 days and they think God has abandoned them and they need to make a golden calf. And there's this mistrust that comes from this slavery that's still in their hearts. And even though God takes them across the Jordan eventually after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, even though he takes them across the Jordan to the promised land, In a sense, the people of Israel never really crossed over. They never really came to that full realisation of their sonship, how precious they were to God, how much God loved them. And their ongoing relationship was marked with the same kind of doubt and fear, which distorted their relationship to God. So you get that right through the Old Testament, in their desire for a worldly king like the nations around us, in their idolatry, in colluding with pagan powers all around them. Uh, And all sorts of different ways, there's this 
disconnect between what God is trying to do amongst his people and their understanding of what he's saying. Again and again, they respond not as children of God, not as a precious people, not as his bride, but as slaves. And again and again, the prophets come, just like John does in our passage, reminding them of God's love, of his power, of his faithfulness, of his goodness, his mercy, his patience. And again and again, they react with fear, temporary repentance. In a spiritual sense, Israel's time of testing in the wilderness was a lot longer than 40 years. It was the whole time from Moses to John the Baptist. It never really come to an end because they'd never really entered into that relationship. And so here we find at the end of this period of history, John standing in the wilderness, causing people to pass through the waters of the Jordan, just like the people of God did physically all those hundreds of years ago, in baptism this time. It represents the end of that centuries-long wandering. A new Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus is coming, who's going to deliver them into the true promised land, that spiritual fulfillment, uh, that ultimate fulfillment. But what we see in this passage is that the reaction of many of them is the same as before. The lesson hasn't been learnt yet. They still see God as a God who desires to rule and control them by fear. They're still inside the slaves. And so John begins this good news with these words. You brood of vipers. It is quite astonishing, isn't it? It is insulting. You brood of vipers. Why is he speaking to them like that? Because their repentance that they're beginning to show is the same old, same old repentance. They're afraid. They're afraid of the God who's going to come and whack them and punish them, cast them off forever, renege on his promises to deliver them. They want to put themselves right because they fear God. The very fact that they thought John might be the Messiah shows the depth of their misunderstanding. So, here's the challenge for us. When you think of repentance, what comes into your mind? When you think of the Lord's return, or the fact that one day you'll stand before him in judgment, what comes into your mind? What's your instinctive response? Is it the response of, oh my goodness, how horrible that will be? Is it a response of fear or of trust? As you, re- as you heard that passage of John, were you hearing it through the, the ears of those people who were going out to see, to see him? This is scary. God's coming. The one comes with fire. When you hear that word fire, what do you think of? When you encounter sin in your own heart, you know, going about your daily business and their sin rears its ugly head again, what do you feel? Shame? Hiding? Running away from God? You know, like Adam and Eve in the garden? Is that your instinctive response when you encounter sin in your own life? When other people see your sin or other people accuse you of sin, is your instinctive response to hide, to, to, to be afraid? Is there this shrinking away from God? 
God wants us to think differently about repentance. He wants it to be a thing that brings freedom, not shame. That brings joy, not fear. Not something we run away from, but something we instinctively and habitually and willingly work into every part of our lives. That's, that's what he wants for us this morning. And it, it, if God's word can just impart a little bit of that freedom to us today, then I think we'll have heard what he's saying. You know, he wants us to be joyfully expectant. The one who can actually deliver us into all the fullness of his promises is about to arrive. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus is near. He's near to each one of us. So this morning I want to look at just understanding God's anger correctly. And then how that frees us to deal with sin joyfully in practical ways. So there's kind of one big point. We've already started making it really. (laughs) And then some practical things for us to think about. A kind of some tools to help us to respond and to build, to begin to build a life of joyful and free repentance rather than repentance that's full of shame and fear. Does that sound okay? Good. Okay, well firstly, let's think about God's anger then. Seems we're going to have a joyful morning together. <laughs> uh, God's anger. You know, it's the thing that really smacks us in the face about John. You read this passage. I just, there's this irony at the end of the verse we read. He preached the good news to them. And you know, up to that point, you kind of think, is this good news? Is it really good news? You brood of vipers, the wrath to come. You know, it's like, um, John's message is offensive. The way he dressed was offensive. The way he spoke was offensive. You know, he was this crazy guy. You know, he's deliberately kind of arresting people's attention. He lived in a weird place and he ate weird stuff. And everything about him was supposed to cause offense and make you stop and go, huh? What, you know, what's this about? And in these words, he's offensive. There's no, there's no point hiding it, is there, really? When you read those words, you brood of vipers, suddenly like, well, hang on, let's get to Jesus, shall we? Get to the nice stuff. You brood of vipers. And, you know, the fact that God is ever angry at all is a big problem for some people. I mean, people who aren't Christians, just I don't think they understand it at all. How can anger ever be something that's good or righteous? But even for Christians, it's a problem. We, you know, there are passages in the Old Testament where we read about God's anger and we really struggle to understand. I, I found that especially as I read about Israel and the, the Israelites in the wilderness. I just, you know, how God interacted with them. Like, wow, he's so hard with them. And yet, it's kind of shot through with... With love. You know, Jesus in the cleansing of the temple. There's this one episode in his whole life and ministry that just puzzles a lot of people. Jesus, the perfect son of God, sinless in everything he thought and did, of course, gets angry and starts pushing over tables and chucking money everywhere and kicking people out of the temple. It doesn't sit well with us, does it? And there's something in us that wants to reject God's anger. You look at Revelation and you've got Jesus robed in, his robe is dipped in blood as he comes to bring vengeance to the earth. You know, that's uncomfortable, isn't it? I, well, I think it is. <laughs> uncomfortable to think about. We're suspicious of anger. We're suspicious of wrath. And very naturally so, because in our everyday experience, our experience of anger, when we experience anger, often, more often than not, we sin. We go beyond the bounds of anger. When people are angry with us, 
often they are sinning or it leads them into sin. And so rightly, we are, we're kind of wary, very wary of human anger. We, we think of anger as leading to perdition, to destruction. Other people's anger directed at us is kind of an anger that wants to, to chop off and to cut off and say, I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. And we take that and we superimpose that on God. And so when we hear John talking about vipers and wrath and so on, we begin to think, is God angry with me like that? Was he angry with the Israelites like that? Was that that what is going on in his heart? But what we have to understand, what Jesus enables us to understand, is that anger is an aspect of love. Anger is the very natural and right response to injustice. When we see and something that is unjust, we are outraged. And that outrage moves us to correct that thing. Where we go wrong is we go beyond the bounds of wisdom in, in trying to correct that. That's human anger. But God doesn't do that. It's a natural response to injustice. Things are not the way they should be. And it moves us, and God's anger moves him to right injustice in our lives. So uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we had to uh, go and talk to someone at Sophie's school. And this teacher was, te- was talking to a classroom of 12 and 13-year-olds about something that was completely inappropriate on several occasions. And it was so bad, I was angry. So angry that I overcame my natural desire to not want to insult a teacher who's doing their best. To not want to put myself in an awkward position and go and talk to the management of the school. So angry that I, I, Abby and I actually raised this subject with one of her teachers and said, this is not right. You know, anger moves us to do that. So our fear is that anger, God's anger directed towards us is to destroy us, but it's actually there to restore us. And that's really understanding that is at the heart of true repentance. St. Augustine said, a person who's afraid of sinning because of hellfire, is, not, is afraid not of sinning, but of burning. That is not a good motive for repentance. God's anger arises against injustice, and if we can understand that, we can be afraid of the right things. So what injustice is God's anger directed at? Very simply this, that we are created to know and be like Christ. We're created to know him and to be like him. Fully aware and filled with the love of the Father. Fully, freely able to return that love to him in obedience. And full of the life of the Holy Spirit. Doing good to others. Overflowing with goodness. That's the wonderful picture. That's what God made us to be. That's what it means to be made in his image. That is life itself. And if we could see, if we could grasp from God's perspective what he intended for you, if you could get in your mind what God designed you to experience, the way he designed you to live, the glory that was due to him through you living the life that he designed you for, the happiness that you should enjoy as his child, the goodness that should pour through you into the world, were you to be like Christ, you would be angry too at the sin in your life, the things that happened to you, the things that you've chosen, the things that you've done. You would be moved with a passion so great you wouldn't, even, you wouldn't be able to contain it. 
the sense of injustice would be so huge. Like the greatest work of art being trampled in the gutter. That's God's anger at sin. Sin it robs us of that perfect freedom. Sin it enslaves people who are designed to be free. It steals and kills and destroys. And God is so angry at that. The stuff that's our fault and the stuff that isn't our fault. He will stop at nothing to set us free from it. Of course, he did stop at nothing. Because he gave his only son. The cross so beautifully portrays anger moved to love. God blasphemed. The author of life killed. Man created for holiness. Friendship and love and communion with God. Killing his creator. And yet we see God's wrath poured out upon those things. And his love gloriously, gloriously emerging. The father giving his son. The son freely laying down his life. Sinful man, in all his rebellion and hatred towards God, cleansed and restored. If we grasp that picture, we will find the heart of true repentance. Repentance that is based on fear of God, of punishment, leads nowhere. We will avoid it. We'll avoid it like the plague. We'll do it when we have to, when we're, when we're uncovered or when we feel incredibly guilty, but it will never become a part of us. But if we fix our eyes on the cross, not only God's gift to us, but God's heart for us, we will, we will be moved to repent with a passion like God's. True repentance sets its sights on Jesus. That's why John says, that's what, this is what the, the, the crowds can't hear. One is coming who is greater than I. When we set our sights on Jesus, we experience the true power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. It fills us with it. How much do you want to be like that? To be perfectly free, to know God's love and to love him perfectly and to love other people with every part of your being. How much do you want that? Isn't that a wonderful thing to desire? And it fills us with a passion for that love and holiness for Christ himself. In all those things, the best thing is we get to experience fellowship with Jesus as well. It's not like he gives us the gift of sonship. We never talk. You know, we get to experience fellowship with him. And as we filled with that passion for this is who God wants you to be, we're filled with a natural anger, hatred towards sin in our own lives. And that order produces true repentance. So just for a first challenge, just on this one big point, is this, have you looked upon Christ? Have you grasped the magnitude of what God wants to do in you? You know, if you've gone through life thinking, do you know what, I'm not that bad. I'm not really sure I've got anything to repent about. The truth is you probably never really understood this fact, what C.S. Lewis calls the intolerable compliment that God wants to pay to us. The one that, oh, it's too big, it's too much. He's given us the power to become children of God. To transform everything about you and to lift you up to be like Christ. Have you grasped what God has saved you for? 
So that's a big point. And the rest is, that's like the first domino, and the rest are just a, a load of dominoes that fall over afterwards, if that's okay. <laughs> if we get that in place, and step by step we find this road of repentance laid out before us, away from perdition and towards promise. So when we put that in place, it produces a whole bunch of things that follow it. And I'm just going to talk, not at length at each one, but just not because I, I don't just want to give you that big idea. I think God wants to give us ways of responding. So the first thing that gives us, if we grasp that true repentance focused on Christ, is it produces in us a true sorrow for sin. A true sorrow for sin. You know, we often talk about the need for repentance at conversion. Like when someone becomes a Christian, we say, you've got to repent. You know, that's a vital part of being saved. But we, anyone who's been a Christian for any length of time knows that you can't possibly know the full extent of your sin when you become a Christian. <laughs> Actually, only as, we, as, only as you grow in Christ and you begin to understand him more, do you become aware of the things you need to, to, to repent of. It's almost like you get more sinful as you become more mature as a Christian. That's not true. But as you see Christ more clearly... You see your sin more fully. And you see more, more deeply how much you need to repent. As we see more Christ more clearly, we see our need to truly repent. Our sadness over sin. As we understand that reality of Christ grows. We're sad for the fact that sin exists at all. We're sad for any element of complicity in our own heart. Anything that we've said... I'll go along with that. And as we see Christ, as we grasp what sin is, as we see him on that cross, we truly, truly repent for the first time. Not from fear, but from love. You know, I think actually we'll truly repent for the first time when we see him face to face. (laughs) Because I think that's the first time we'll ever be fully aware of of sin. And he'll be there to wipe away every tear. But as we see him, we have those tears of repentance. That's what God is looking for. And I want to ask you this morning, have you ever felt that deep sorrow for sin that comes out of love for Christ? Have you ever felt it? Have you felt it recently? Have you looked upon Christ upon the cross and seen what God desires to give you? And out of love, repented. When we see, have that sorrow, it moves us. The next step, it moves us to the purest type of prayer. When we truly repent, and we're overcome with love, and it makes us want to run away from sin, tears come. Whether literally or inside, they come. And I think we pray the purest prayer that we can pray. True sorrow. For our sin. God loves. <laughs> Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. They'll see God. And I think this is the purest prayer we have. When we realise that sinfulness. Uh, one guy called Jerome. A church father said this. Humble tears of the heart. You are a queen. And all powerful. You fear not the tribunal of the judge. And your presence silences those who accuse you. Nothing holds you back. Or keeps you from having access to the throne of grace. Never do you turn away with empty hands. The agony you cause the devil is even worse than the pains of hell. You triumph over the unconquerable one. 
You bind and force the hand of the Almighty. Prayer alone can touch him. And when that prayer is accompanied by tears of compunction, then it is irresistible. Prayer is oil which disposes God to listen. Tears wound him and oblige him to act. When we come to God with that true repentance, and we come, it leads us to that true prayer, we have this amazing assurance that we are heard. God hears our prayers and we come to him. And that leads us to the next step. As we have that assurance that we're heard, we come to a knowledge that sets us free from fear. We're set free from fear. So imagine this. Happened to me today, actually. You find a purse on the floor in some random place. And you pick it up. And at the moment you pick it up, this bit didn't happen. At the moment you pick it up, someone says, Hey, what are you doing? How do you feel in that moment? Well, it depends, doesn't it? It depends what you're about to do. Uh, you, if you were going to return it to the person, if you were picking up to look who it belonged to, or to take it to the police station, whatever it is, although they said you can't, you can't do that anymore, you won't feel guilt at all. You'll be like, oh, thank goodness I found the person. But if you thought about stealing what's inside it, or seeing how much was in there before you stole it, or whatever, then you're going to feel guilty or accused. You know, and that's just a, that's a picture of the feelings we should have as we encounter sin in our lives. The freedom that comes when we pursue this Christ-likeness. Often when we encounter sin in our lives, when someone comes along, you know, something happens and you see a sin arising in you, you feel, a, a, oh no, a guilt, an accusation. What are you going to do? What's going to happen? But actually we should feel free because if we're focused on Christ, it's just like someone saying, hey, what are you doing with that purse? And you're like, well, I'm, I'm taking it to Jesus, so... <laughs> You know, nothing to worry about, right? No accusation. If we're aiming for Christ-likeness, when we encounter sin in our lives, instead of feeling accusation, a desire to run or to hide, we feel we should feel relief. So, you know, we just take it, you know, everyday things. I want to serve my neighbours, but I fear their rejection or their judgement. Or I'm too lazy or too selfish. I, you know, I want to do something and I encounter sin in my own heart. Laziness, selfishness, fear, whatever. I, I want to see people as God sees them, to love and to value them like Jesus does, to see the image of God in people, but I'm hopelessly judgmental. There's that sin in me. I want to trust God's commands, but I fear that if I do that, I'm going to miss out in some way. I encounter sin in my life. A Christian friend comes to me with a correction or a rebuke, and my immediate reaction is, oh no, what are they going to say? A non-Christian comes with an accusation, and my immediate example is, oh no, what if there's some truth in it? If I'm afraid of the Lord's rejection, then every time I discover sin in my life, I'm going to want to hide it, minimise it, run away from it. I'm never going to face up to it. I'm going to be thinking, oh, not another thing to deal with. But if I have that security of knowing that I'm accepted, knowing that my heart is pure before God, I have nothing to fear. If we truly set our hearts on Christ, knowing him, Knowing the Father's love, obeying him in perfect freedom, loving the people around us. We find in ourselves a frank ability to simply come to him and say, Lord, I found another one. <laughs> Please, will you deal with it? And I think there's a wonderful freedom in that. 
I'll just give you a practical example. The other day I heard about someone who got promoted in a job. Someone I like, don't know particularly well, but, you know, nice guy. And immediately I felt jealous. (laughs) For no good reason. None at all. Just jealousy. And there it was. And part of me wants to run and hide and go, oh, no, I'll justify myself, that's the worst thing. I probably didn't deserve it. You know... But actually, because I have this assurance of Christ, of God's good intentions for me, I don't have to be ashamed. It's there. I I didn't ask for it. I'm going to go and take it to Jesus and say, Lord, can you deal with this, please? Let me know when you're done. (laughs) Or let me know what I've got to do. You know? And there's a wonderful freedom in that. That that willingness to come to God with with our, our sin is as saintly as we can get in this life. You know, we can't be perfect in this life, but we can have pure hearts. We can be ready whenever we encounter sin to take them to God. And that is as prepared as we need to be to meet Jesus. So next step then. The freedom from fear of accusation frees us to deal with sin systematically. Once you're not afraid of discovering sin in your life anymore, then it frees you to deal with sin systematically. Like, okay, come on, let's bring it on. Let's go, we'll, we'll deal with this stuff. I don't need to run away. I don't need to only deal with it when I find it. I want to get rid of all of it. Charles Spurgeon, I remember reading a long time ago, he, he preached about a man, he gave an example of a guy who came home and found his house was infested with snakes. And he said... What would the guy do if his house was infested with snakes that were under the bed and in the closet and, and you know, behind the curtains and under the floorboards? Would he just you know, kill one or two of them and then go to bed that night and go, oh, that was, I feel so much better now. He would not rest <laughs> until he'd rooted them all out and made sure that they wouldn't come back, right? Might, I don't know, maybe they had a snake problem in 19th century London, I don't know, but maybe it's hard for us to grasp that. Like rats or something, you know. You wouldn't rest until they were gone, would you? And that's what it's like. Once you're free from fear, you've got no, you, you, wouldn't, you don't want to rest until you root out sin. And so God calls us to a disciplined self-examination and confession. You know, being, living a repentant life is not like looking over your shoulder constantly going, am I sinning now? Am I sinning now? That's not what God wants for us. That would be like riding a bike and going, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't work like that, does it? But things that we can do, and Christians have done for a long, long time, daily, examine your conscience. Now, often it's good to have like a second short, quiet time. If you have one in the morning, just in the evening, just before you go to bed, and come before God and say, Lord, I just want to bring my heart to you. Will you just let me know if there's anything I need to deal with? It's just so easy to do. Confess our sin to God. You know, I think sometimes we take God's grace it's, we, we love it so much that actually we actually forget to confess sin. Well, not that we take him for granted, but we just sort of assume it's done. You know, there's a wonderful power in actually confessing your sin to God. Specifically, like, I did this on this day. It's wonderfully powerful. You know, John, we quote this verse a lot, but it's worth saying again. John writes in his first letter, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and forgives us and purifies us from all unrighteousness. A wonderful power in confessing sin. And when you're not afraid of it, you'll feel free to do it. Confess your sins to one another, James writes in his letter. There's a wonderful power. If you, if you have Christian friends you trust, 
who are not going to be scandalized, led into sin by what you're telling them, who have the wisdom to deal with it. It's a wonderful power in confessing your sins to those who are close to you. It just brings things out into the light. It says to the devil, you've got no power or dominion here. There's no, no room for you to work, no, no lies for you to, to pull on like little threads. Confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you may be healed, James writes. And another time when we can regularly and uh, in a disciplined way um, deal with our sin is before communion. You know, we, we come to communion, we meet with God in a special way. We're united with him through these gifts of grace. And so Paul writes about that. He says, Whenever whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That doesn't mean that communion becomes this you brood of vipers moment. Communion should be this joyful time. It doesn't mean you sit there going, oh, I've done something wrong, I can't take communion. No, it means confess your sin to God. Quietly, just where you're sat. Just pray to him and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm taking the opportunity to, to bring this thing to you. And confident in his forgiveness, in his love, in what he intends for you, you can come and, and receive. So a few steps, a few more. Dealing with sin doesn't have to just be confession and examination. It doesn't have to be this passive thing. It can also be something we can do actively. So the people who come to John the Baptist ask him, what shall we do? And that's the question that we should have in our, our hearts as well. What shall we do? Uh, and the people ask him, and, they, and John replies to them, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So we can actually take a, an active stance towards dealing with our sin. And he tells, notice what he does, he tells each of the three groups of people, you've got the crowds, you've got the soldiers and the tax collectors, each of these three groups of people, he gives them specific things to do that are to do, are to do with the sins that they commit. So the, the soldiers tend to rob and exploit people because they've got swords. The tax collectors gouge people for taxes because they have that authority. The people, the crowds, were concerned with their material goods and so they were protective of their possessions. And he says, share what you've got, share your coat, give your money away. He deals with them. And in the same way, God, if we want to uh, live that lifestyle of repentance, we can seek to combat our specific sins. Now, seen from a perspective of fear, that sounds like, oh, I need to pay God back, or I need to make up for things I've done. It's not about that. It's not about balancing the books. We could never do that. But it's about being united with Christ. And, uh, a friend of mine was telling me the other day, um, he's... Uh, trains people who are like in high-powered positions in London in various companies. And this guy came to him and said, you know, I've got, I've got no emotions. <laughs> I just don't feel anything for anybody. And this guy said to him, so what we do, we're going to go and buy a load of sandwiches from Tesco or something like that, and we're going to go and give them to homeless people on the streets. <laughs> that was his remedy. I think there's great wisdom in that. Because it takes this guy from this position of selfishness and it puts him into the, the middle of this, this struggle. It sort of breaks up hard ground. It, it, it throws us onto the mercy of God because it's doing the very thing that we, we find hard. But it also immerses us in that good thing that God wants us to do. It helps us to see why sin is bad. It helps us to desire the good thing. So if you struggle with pride, if you struggle with feeling like you're better than everybody, do something humiliating. Go and clean the toilets at a care home or something. 
If, you, if I let you in. If you struggle to value people, serve the poor. Spend time with the lonely. If you're selfish, give money to those in need. If, you're, if you find, uh, you know, you're bound by appetites, then fast. If you're cold in your relationship to God, then make an effort to pray. If you're lazy, then make an effort to work hard. We can't fix ourselves. But love doesn't say, oh, when, even if we've hardly got anything to offer, we give it to God, don't we? That's what love does. It, says, it doesn't say, oh, I've only got a few things. I'm keeping them. It says, God, I love you. I'm going to give everything to you. And even if that seems very little to you, that unites us with Christ. Okay, last step. Last step in a life of repentance is it's more passive. It's uh, about embracing pain. John talks again in his passage in vivid terms of Jesus' judgment. He comes with this winnowing fork. I'm not a farmer, I'm not particularly familiar with winnowing, but it's about separating wheat from chaff. There is, there's a, a judgment coming. He talks about instead of water, which is cleansing and nice, if a little bracing, if it's the Jordan, Jesus is coming with fire, which burns and purifies. And there's something in a life of repentance that we cannot get around and is vital for us to grasp, which is that preparing ourselves to meet Christ does involve the pain of purification. We have to embrace it. Our fear is that pain is to do with punishment. So when things go wrong in our lives, or we get sick, or something happens to us that's unpleasant, because we have that fearful brood of vipers mentality that God maybe isn't on our side, we're afraid of that pain and we run from it. But if we trust God and we know that his intention is to bring us to Christ and make us like Jesus, then we have nothing to fear. If any of you spoke to my daughter Charlotte for the last month or so, she will have introduced herself with the words, I hurt my toe. She dropped a a load of plates on her toe about six weeks ago and it went black. And And then about two weeks ago, the nail started to crack and then it was hanging off this little hangnail. And she was crying so much at night, she would catch her nail on the duvet. She is so stubborn. She's so stubborn, she wouldn't let us go anywhere near it. <laughs> and then one night she woke up, she was just howling, oh, it hurts so much, it hurts so much. And I, and I said, Charlie, let me, let me pull this nail off. And she said, no, 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 no. And in the end, I was angry. Not with her, angry because my daughter was in pain. And I grabbed her ankle and said, no, and I grabbed the toe and I, and I pulled the nail off. It was the right time. Don't worry, mums, it was fine. <laughs> there, was a, yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a little bit of blood, not too much. Uh. It, but it was, it was just the right time. Promise, I promise it was. Have we talked about this? <laughs> yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> You know, when God causes us pain, and God causes us pain, he leads us into pain. His, his purpose is not to harm us, is it? Ever. Always, always to do us good. 
you know, Charlotte, she's three. She, you know, we, oh, you can't have a conversation about it and say, I can't say to her, it will hurt for a minute, but then it will be okay. She just can't understand. Not yet. Another year or so. So I just had to do it. And there are things that we cannot understand from God's perspective. He, he cannot fit his uh, eternal mind into our, into our brains and explain all the ins and outs of how you get from this to be like Jesus. But we just have to trust him when it hurts. It hurts. You know, confronting sin hurts. We, have, we see our guilt. We see the pain, the damage that's been done. It's painful to see. Admitting that we're wrong hurts. Letting go of idols, securities that, that we feel help us, but actually keep us from God and keep us from that freedom in Christ. That hurts. And because it hurts, we want to run away from it. But if we know that pain comes from the one who loves us and died for us, who intends our good, who's all-powerful, if we know that nothing will separate us from his love, then we can not just not run from that pain, but we can embrace it, even welcome it. A friend was telling me, you're here so you know who you are, about someone they knew who was diagnosed with cancer and given a very short time to live. They sold their possessions and they uh, booked themselves into a hospice. They were given eight weeks to live. Uh, the, the pain was so great that in the midst of the suffering, she cried out to God, got so angry with God. Uh, why won't you just take me home? And night after night happened. And one night, in the midst of the, the worst of the pain, God spoke to her. And said something like, we're ready for you. You can come home now if you want to. But if you come now, you will not enjoy me as much as if you wait. He gave her a choice. And she chose in her prayer to stay. And God kept her alive for another, I think, 11 months it was. And when she died, she had a list of things specific things that God had dealt with in her heart to prepare her for heaven. God purifies us in pain. Sickness, (laughs) literal pain, purifies us and moves us to that place of honesty with God. In the circumstances of life, God purifies us. When things happen, you think, not again, not another thing. Oh no. (sighs) Our instinct is to run away, to cry out to God, why is this happening? Maybe, maybe you're even in a situation right now and you're thinking, that, God, why is this happening again? He loves you. All that time, he's deepening your trust in him, freeing you and preparing you to meet him. You know, and as he frees us, we find this amazing Christ-likeness being worked in us. Not only the ability to embrace what comes, but to run to Christ, to enter into situations of suffering so that we can glorify God and serve others more. Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. That's a path. Path of repentance. You know, it's such a source of life for us when we grasp God's Father heart. It does, you know, it prepares the way of the Lord. It prepares the way of the Lord in us. To know him more now and to meet him one day face to face. But it also fills the world 
with the image of the cross. You know, if we live this life fearlessly and honestly dealing with sin in pursuit of Christ-likeness, we proclaim the Lord's death in a most powerful way to the world that's watching. When we, when we live a life of repentance, we paint again with vivid colours Calvary. The picture of God's love. We, we allow the world to see the repulsiveness and the horror of sin. But even more beautifully, in God's dealing with us, we enable them to see the beauty of his love. Yeah. The one who not only accepts us, who not only desires that we might be saved, but who is able to deliver us from the slavery of sin and make us into sons. He's able to transform us into the likeness of Christ. That is the message of salvation. So let people see your repentance. Do not hide it or run away from it. Let them gaze upon the one they pierced. That they too may receive the power to become children of God. Amen.